mysticism per se, but mysticism perhaps with a Catholic, Roman Catholic flavor, and, and we'll see what he has to say about Protestants, and also with a family flavor. And I'm sure all of you know Alan, and I'm sure most of us have had the opportunity to hear him teach us before, and he's a gifted teacher, and we look forward to having you, Alan. Come and, and teach us, please. With you all, as always. Um, I was in the front row. <laughs> okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. Um, growing up Catholic, we had a real fear and awe of our pastors, and uh, still do. Still do. Um, we'll talk about mysticism today and, and next week from a couple of different perspectives. One is from the Roman Catholic perspective, uh, because that's how I was raised. Uh, and, but there, there are a lot of mystics in, in the history of mankind, uh, Protestants as well as Jewish, as well as um, followers of Islam, but also from a very personal perspective, because in our family we have a woman, uh, she was, we called her Aunt May, and she was an aunt by association, not by blood, and she was uh, a patient of my grandfather's who was an ophthalmologist, and um, she was declared a mystic by the Catholic Church uh, in the 50s, 1950 actually. And, um, as a child, we would, of course, we would visit her and we got to know her obviously very, very well. And it was, for a child, it was absolutely an extremely frightening experience to go talk to a mystic. Um, so I'm going to talk about our experiences with her. There's a book about her. If you want to, you can Google uh, Aunt May and find a book about her. It's called uh, Susanna Mary Beardsworth, and it's about her conversion. She was because she was uh, an Anglican before she became a Catholic. Uh, and she did convert, and there's a, a strong bent in, the, in this particular book about her, uh, about the Catholic faith, which gives a, a kind of a bias about it. But uh, the Catholic Church, if, if you're familiar with it, uh, or even if you're not, has always had a long tradition of a very uh, mystical, magical kind of uh, uh, liturgy, if you will. Particularly in the old days when you had uh, the old Latin, uh, the Tridentine Mass. And uh, it was a very uh, spiritual, it was a very contemplative service, and there was a tremendous focus on individual prayer, uh, whether it was through the rosary, uh, individual prayer at home with the, the family, or through novenas and that sort of thing. And it's, so there's a long tradition of that kind of mystical kind of thinking. My mom was raised Southern Baptist from West Virginia, and my dad was first-generation Irish Catholic. There were some subtle cultural differences between them. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's interesting, I married a Maranatha uh, Baptist girl, and uh, I was second generation Irish Catholic, and they were a student. <laughs> That's why we're here. Um, <laughs> first time Marcia met a priest, we were talking about, we made a decision to get married, and I'm, I'm digressing a bit here, I'll get back to my point. But uh, she, we had to go talk to a priest, because I, I want to I have the ceremony with the priest as well as with. Uh, her parents uh, pastor, her parents founded their church, so that was obviously a must. Um, so we went to meet the priest, and, and you all know Marcia, and she's a very competent, uh, brilliant woman. Absolutely, she was absolutely scared. I've never seen her shake before then, or since then. And we went to the, the residence, uh, which was outside the Catholic church. There's only one Catholic church in West Tennessee for five counties. Tells you how there aren't a whole lot of Catholics running around there. In fact, my in-law said I was the first live Catholic they'd ever met. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember 
remember when they said that to me, I said, would you mind sharing more about that? Uh, they, my father-in-law said they had seen that Pope feller on television, but he's already dead. <laughs> so when the priest opened the door, he knocked on the president's door, and the priest opened the door, and, and he had a pair of blue jeans on and a polo shirt, and Marshall, oh, so I said, what do you think was going to come out with a whip? Um, but it was this kind of persona about not only the clergy, but the church overall that kind of led a lot of Catholics to a very strong belief and a very powerful connection with, uh, with mystics. Now, for the Catholic Church to declare somebody a mystic is, is a very long process, uh, particularly um, since probably the 30s on, because obviously there's a great deal of public skepticism about folks that were named mystics. During the Middle Ages, and I'll talk more about this in a second, you had quite a few mystics, both Protestant as well as Catholic. In fact, um, you know, Martin Luther was, um, was raised in the Benedictine monk tradition, uh, which, is, which is, has a lot of mystic uh, history to it. And some of his, um, his writings, in fact, to some degree reflect that. I'll get to the particular document in a little bit. But there's this long tradition of the Catholic Church is very, very careful, at least in, in their minds. And I'm uh, talking both you know, as a former Catholic and as well as somebody who's a, a psychotherapist. And Paul and I have talked about this because you know, the, the therapist in me looks at this and says, is the person delusional? You know, they have a psychotic disorder. Because very often we'll see, for example, schizophrenics that have a very strong bias or belief that, that, that God, particularly Jesus, is talking to them. Uh, and when they have an auditory hallucination, it's not like somebody's talking in their mind. They're actually hearing this. I mean, like if I was talking to Roger, they would actually be just as real to them. So I look at this two ways. Do I look at it as a belief or as somebody who is looking at it scientifically and saying it's a person delusional? And Paul and I were talking beforehand. You know, at some point, you have, you have to, if you're going to accept any of this, you have to make a tremendous leap in faith. So we're going to talk about that as well. But I started thinking when I was preparing this, when did people stop having active conversations with God? If you look at the Bible, uh, there's a lot of history in, in the Old Testament, conversations individuals would have, you know, an active conversation, for example, like Moses would have, or, or, or Joshua or some of the others, where they were an active conversation back and forth. And the more we look at the Bible, at least as I understood, and please keep me straight on this, but it becomes more of uh, either a one-way conversation. For example, when, when God uh, made the statement about Christ that this is my son in whom I am well pleased, the whole assembled crowds heard that, but there was no dialogue going back to it that, that I recall. And I'm trying to think, at what point did we begin to pull away from a belief that there was actually a, a union with God in a way that there's a conversation, not that we're on any kind of equal level, but there's actual conversation. And mystics, to a large degree, uh, their experience is uh, a very active discussion with God, uh, with the saints, or with Jesus. Uh, Aunt May, for example, we would go to visit her, and she would come to the door, and she would tell us that she had just finished having breakfast with the Holy Family. And she would actually sit in her chair, and she would have breakfast with Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. And, of course, the therapist in me said, okay, there's meds for this. But if you, and the more, and I've read, read the book several times in my lifetime, um, but the more I read it, the more he began to have a belief that this was, this was something that she was actually experiencing. You can say, well, is it in her mind, or was it, uh, was it real? And there's some, I'll give some examples. I'll talk more about her next week's in specifics, but there are some things that happened to her that you just cannot explain and that there was corroborating evidence for that was just, uh, well, when I was a child, it absolutely freaked you out. Uh, one thing about Aunt May, whenever she quoted the Gospels, whenever she quoted the words of Jesus, her voice would change. 
And it wasn't a woman that was talking like a man. It was the man's voice. And and I, it's, my whole family sings. We've been singing for years. We know pretty good about um, knowledge about the voices. But the voice would absolutely change. And when you're a, a 10-year-old boy, that'll freak you out. <coughs> um, when my dad's ever going over to see Aunt May, he's like, is she going to talk like a guy again? Because it's scary. <laughs> um, I want to talk about the Catholic definition for mysticism, but, and this is kind of a general one as well. But basically, if you look at the definition of mysticism, uh, it's a meditation, prayer, or theology focused on direct experience of union with the divinity. The direct experience with the one-on-one. Um, I went to look at the Catholic definition of this. It's interesting, the Catholic Church doesn't say a lot about mysticism um, because of all the, the, the publicity they've gotten with regard to, to how you become a saint and that sort of thing. Oh, and, and a quick aside, not all mystics are saints and not all saints are mystics. It's a different kind of experience. I'll explain that as we go along. But the Catholic Church, going back centuries, uh, has always had a belief in that, that, that there was a connection with certain individuals uh, between themselves and in a union with the divinity. In fact, there are some mystics, if you look at history, uh, and there are, when they die, this is not a universal experience with mystics, but some of them, when they died, their bodies became what they call incorruptible, where they actually, two, 100 years later, 200 years later, their bodies were just as when they died. There was no embalming, there was no, and there's sort of a few of the mystics that are on display, if you will, uh, which I thought was kind of different, um, in some churches in Europe. And if you look at the pictures, and I have not been there, but when you look at the pictures, even today, they look as if they're alive. And this is this is 160 years for one of them, and almost 200 for the others. So there's some belief in the incorruptibility of the body. But the Catholic Church says that there is in our soul, <clears throat> and, and this is a very strong belief in the Catholic Catholic Church. And I think for a lot of folks who seek a very a very close union with Christ uh, or with, with our God, that there is in our soul a capacity for more truth and perfection than we can ever acquire through the knowledge of created things. We realize, and we they're talking the royal we the Catholic Church likes to do that. Uh, we realize that God alone is the end of man, that in the possession of God alone we can reach the satisfaction of our aspirations. Uh, is, there, it says, is there truly possible a union of our reason and will with God, more intimate than that we possess through created things, through the world? Can we expect more than a knowledge of God by analogical concepts and more by the attitudes or by, by more by comparisons? The Catholic Church is guardian of Christian doctrine. This is the Catholic Church, of course, believes is the, the guardian of Christian doctrine. I was raised uh, that the, there was one true church, the Catholic Church, and that everybody else was pretty much out of luck. Um, <clears throat> my Southern Baptist grandmother was an absolute saint, and I remember asking a nun one time when I was in first grade, saying that my grandmother was a Baptist, which that mean she was going to go to hell? And the nun gave one of the most insightful answers I've ever heard since was that no, Alan, a bunch of men made their rule. <laughs> I thought that was pretty telling. So thank you, Sister Ignatius. Uh, so I felt a lot better when I went home. But the Catholic Church's guardian of the Christian doctrine through her teaching of theologians gives the solution of the problem. Uh, she asserted that there are limits in the human reason. The human soul is a natural capacity, and what they call potentia of an emptiness, uh, but no... Uh, no real urgent need or positive ability to reach God otherwise than by analogical knowledge or by comparisons and, and they say reading scripture, which they obviously, the Catholic, people often say the Catholics don't read the Bible. In, in every Catholic service, there are at least two readings from the Bible. One from, uh, generally, there's always one gospel reading. There's always a gospel reading, and there's always a reading from the New or Old Testament or the epistles. 
So there is a, a strong use of, 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 the, um, of the Bible. In fact, that all the sermons that you hear on Sunday services are based upon the gospel reading of that particular day. So contrary to popular belief, we actually do read the Bible, although not as much as, as we ought to, as we ought to. I say we, the, the old Catholic. Last year, one of my challenges was to read the Bible in a year. Um, and uh, Mike Long, I was, he was helping with, the, helping with that. And, and I, we had some... some um, my father-in-law died this summer, so we kind of got behind on that. I'm still a little behind, but it was interesting because I had not spent a lot of time in the Old Testament. Uh, pretty brutal place. Um, tough crowd back then. Um, so I spent a lot of time in the Old Testament. Um, it says, man cannot know by natural reason. He can know through revelation of faith that what he cannot attain by his natural power, he can reach by the grace of God. God has graciously elevated human nature to a su supernatural state. He's assigned it as his ultimate end in the direct vision of himself, the beatific vision. By this end, uh, can be reached only in the next life. In the present life, we can but prepare ourselves for it with the aid of revelation and grace. To some souls, however, even in the present life, God gives a very special grace by which they are enabled to feel his sensible presence um, by mystical con contemplation. In this act, there is no annihilation or absorption of the creature, of the creature into God, uh, but God becomes intimately present to the created, and this, enlightened by special illuminations, contemplates um, with ineffable joy with the, with the union of God. So I'll talk about how do folks become, become a mystic. There's a threefold path, Jerry, that most folks think about in terms of um, whether somebody is actually a mystic. And there's, and there's only really one test that, um, for determining the authenticity of a mystic. And that's based on what they what they share with us, because obviously if you're not a mystic, you can't experience what they're experiencing. Unless you can get some kind of comparative proof or corroborating evidence uh, of, of a, a mystical experience. And with my Aunt May, um, and the reason we called her aunt was when my mother converted to Catholicism, she became my mother's godmother. Uh, and in the Catholic Church, the godparent is the individual who, on the death of your parents, if you're a child, will raise you in the faith. And that's a very serious responsibility uh, on the part of Catholics. Um, I was my, uh, both my niece's godfather, and um, my brother got pretty upset when I joined here. <laughs> I remember the day I joined Malone, uh, gave me one of his famous hugs, and I went home and told my mother I joined the church. He goes, good thing the girls are older now. <laughs> um, now, talk about, you know, uh, there was a lot of mystical history in the Catholic Church, and then Reformation occurred. And during that time, there was a real pushing away from the belief in mysticism or the belief in that kind of connectivity with God. Uh, but then there was a counter-reformation, and, and you started to see mystics developing in different, there's different ones in different countries. For example, uh, in Spain, it was Ignatius Loyola. He was the big, <coughs> excuse me, the big mystic in, in that particular group. St. Francis of Assisi was a mystic. Uh, and again, not all saints are mystics, but, and not all mystics are saints. Uh, my, my, our Aunt May was never declared a saint by the Catholic Church. To be declared a saint by the Catholic Church, you have to have three miracles that are attributed to your intervention. Uh, you post-death. Um, it used to take a long time for this to occur, but currently the Catholic Church has them on the fast track. Um, <laughs> so uh, they're trying to get uh, Pope John Paul um, uh, canonized very quickly. And they've already attributed one one uh, miracle to him for the Catholic Church, so uh, th which is interesting because it's considered this is really fact. I mean, he hasn't been gone all that long. <laughs> when I asked my, my brother, I hear careful talking to my family about this because he kind of scares them. In fact, I was telling some folks earlier. I told my, my 
mom called me last night and my father is deteriorating rather quickly it's really sad and he doesn't is not cognizant of a lot of conversation but she put him on the phone to talk to me and uh, he asked what I was doing I said well I'm, I'm going to teach a Sunday school class tomorrow but I'm May and I won't say the exact words dad said uh, because dad was a drill sergeant in the army uh, <laughs> but he says what the blank the blank are you talking to a bunch of Protestants about I'm May about I said well they're curious and, and I, I said they want to know some some you know about this and so I was asked to teach about this he goes well that's the blank 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 interesting thing um, but it's interesting that, that um, you know, my family, uh, you find family secrets out every time you talk to your parents, no matter how old they are and how old you are. Uh, and there's even secrets about Aunt May that, that none of us are aware of, with the exception of my father, he will not talk about them. Um, as you all remember from our discussion, uh, being the past of being here, my dad was with the CIA, so he keeps secrets real well. Um, but he won't talk about it. In fact, all of Aunt May's records uh, were kept in a uh, convent in um, Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, because a lot of her visions and a lot of her and her particular uh, method of, of expression was art, uh, where it was called guided drawing, uh, along with visions. But a lot of her, most of her uh, drawings were eschatological; uh, they predicted the future. And uh, apparently, some of them were extremely accurate, uh, well before the, the beginning of certain events in, in the world. I'll go through those next week a little bit more. But they have hidden them away. Uh, for whatever reason, and, and nobody can get to them. Because I asked my, I asked my family, I want to do some research. I want to, I want to get to them. And my dad said another few words to me that and it can be difficult to do. Um, <laughs> but there's a threefold path to folks becoming a mystic, and uh, one is called purgative, one is illuminative, and one is unitive. And now, in, in each mystic, you have different kind of. Uh, methodologies, if you will, but the, generally the, the purgative is a purification process, and depending on, on the mystic you have, um, they have different ways of purifying themselves. Some of them actually uh, would whip themselves, uh, some of them would starve themselves, some of them would only live, for example, on the Eucharist, which is the host, the Catholic, the Catholic host, uh, but in some way they felt it was very necessary to purify themselves in order to be acceptable to have that kind of union with God. Um, they also discipline themselves a great deal with regard to prayer. Uh, prayer is, a, is the key component, and that's odd. I think not odd. I don't think, but a lot of people think Catholics don't pray for some reason. We have missiles. They have Catholics have missiles, and the prayer is very, very powerful within a strong Catholic community. And they, but the mystic has a disciplined prayer process that every day, most of the hours of their day are dedicated to prayer. And generally, it's prayer in certain positions. And by that, I mean very often it'll be kneeling uh, on the hard ground or something that's somewhat punitive to the body uh, or, or uh, a punishment to some degree. So while you're praying, you're also experiencing some pain. You may have read, anybody read anything on Opus Day? The very conservative Catholic cult, uh, uh, careful, um, a, a collection of people who are Catholic. Um, very, very conservative group, and they are very much involved in this uh, kind of punitive prayer process. This is Alan's term, uh, where they actually will wear a device around their leg that when you cinch it, it actually pokes into your, your leg. And I'm, and I'm blank on the name, but I read the book about two or three years ago in Opus Dei. Uh, John Paul VI apparently was, was a member of Opus Dei. But there's a lot of, of punishment of self as a mortification process, uh, suffering, because Catholics do very firmly believe that one of the ways to heaven is to, to suffer for others on earth. And it's, that's not uncommon to the monastic orders, for example, uh, where they will literally take a vow of silence for 10 years, uh, or they, they eat very sparingly, and the, the, the work is very rigorous. Um, and mystics also 
go into this, but at a, at a probably like uh, monastery square, if you will. It's a much, much more powerful process. Aunt May, I'm, I'm not as familiar with, with what she did in terms of, of, of being punitive to self, but I know she was very, very, um, she did not eat much food. Uh, my grandfather ended up taking care of her. He became her guardian uh, because she had no means of income uh, once she stopped working, and which was quite young, and I'll talk a lot more about why that happened in terms of her, her journeys of mystic. But she had a very, very dedicated and, and powerful prayer life. That's how she spent most of her day. Uh, and and eating. They, don't, they don't sleep a lot as well. Um, certain times of the day, certain postures, um, standing, kneeling, they'll stand for hours and hours and hours and do this. Um, so there's, there's kind of a spiritual as well as a corporal, if you will, part of the prayer, if that makes sense. You know, a very physical part. Uh, more about the purification process. The, the, the deeds of the flesh are considered to be um, an impediment to a union with God. So it's a kind of denial of the needs of the flesh uh, for, for mystics. And if you look at St. Francis of Assisi, look at his story. You know, he, was, he was basically a hedonist, a very wealthy and, and, and individual who had a very, very good life, turned it around completely to where he had he eschewed all of his uh, worldly possessions and lived essentially not, not so much as a hermit, but without any means of support, was very, very poor, a lot of self-punishment, and St. Francis of Assisi is, is considered to be a mystic by the Catholic Church in addition to being a saint. But he had this very, very uh, strict process of, of self-purification as a way to, to prepare him to, to pray to, to our Lord. Um, and I'll read, I'll read a quote here. The deeds of the flesh here include not only external behavior, but also those habits, attitudes, compulsions, and addictions uh, which oppose themselves as true being and living as a Christian. So it's external as well as internal process. Um, purification is an awareness of one's own imperfections and finiteness, followed by self-discipline and, again, mortification. Um, the second phase is illumination for, for mystics. So once they purify themselves physically and punish themselves beyond a, a level that we would consider normal, um, and I don't know, Paul, if you diagnose it as sadistic behavior, a masculine behavior rather, but, you know, is it that or is it just this preparation for a union with God? So, again, that's kind of the argument that I have even in myself. Is this something that's, you know, uh, dysfunctional? Uh, with first blush, you would look at that and go, eh, you know, if your neighbor was doing it, what would you think? If you saw your neighbor do it, or, or if one of your kids did it, uh, what would you, you know, think at that point? Would you, you know, support them in this effort, or would you think it was something that was, you know, a little out, out, outside the, the realm of normal? And, and that's a fair question. You know, and by the way, I, I, questions, dialogue, you have a question, throw it at me anytime. Uh, I'm trying to think of, if one of my sons entered into this lifestyle, and felt that they were called to do this as a way of union, becoming, uh, developing a deeper union with God, what would I think as a parent? Because they, their life is not much fun. Uh, Aunt May's life was miserable uh, at a certain point. She was a very successful businesswoman uh, in hair care uh, and cosmetics. She developed all kinds of different things and, and had, had a uh, roaring business going, but the call to faith became so strong that it literally ruined her business. Um, and would you want your child to be willing for your children or grandchildren to give that up? A normal life to live this kind of odd lifestyle. Um, I remember telling my parents when I was a child that I wanted to be a monk. And um, that I thought that would be a, a good, I liked the Catholics. 
Um, but I, then the palestelacy, you know, I thought that'd be a problem down the road. Uh, but I remember going to a month one time, he, had, he was taking the vow of silence, and at that point, the vow of silence was about 10 years. You could take a di different increments. And I thought my job was to make him talk. Uh, it didn't work, and I got a lot of trouble for it. But, uh, you know, for 10 years, these people would have no word at all. Even though they were living with, in a group, their existence was markedly different than anybody else's. And that, again, they felt prepared them for a closer union with our Lord. Uh, I went to the monastery in Conyers because the abbot there in Conyers was the abbot up in Berryville, Virginia, and my, he was a patient of my grandfather's. So we moved down and went down there, and we went to the bookstore, and I was buying a loaf of you know, bread. They make some great bread. Uh, and the, the monk who was working at the cash register had just come off his vow of silence for 10 years. He was having a tough day. Um, I gave him a, I always, all I had was a fifty dollar bill. I gave fifty dollars. Oh, that's a big one. That's a big one. And he just wasn't quite sure what to do with it. Um, but I remember asking him because I, you know, in my Martian kills him, I do this sort of thing. I, I would want to find out stuff, so I'd ask him why. Why would you, why would you not want to talk to somebody for ten years? And the whole answer again was to prepare him to purify him for that closer union uh, with God. And that's what monks very. And that's why. That's why one of the reasons. Some monks are priests, but some are not. A monk who is not a priest cannot celebrate Mass, cannot perform uh, the Eucharist or any, any of the sacraments. So they, and then they have no standing in the hierarchy of the church, and they choose that deliberately because they feel it really frees them from any of the hierarchy and the politics. Uh, they are dedicated solely to that, that uh, constant effort to become one with our Lord and through that kind of uh, lifestyle. But anyway, I, I digress a bit. The illumination part. Excuse me, I take antihistamines every morning. Um, the, the illumination is, is actively seeking a, a connection with the Holy Spirit. A very strong belief in the, in the Holy Spirit infusing an individual. And they do that through Scripture. Um, and, and they really want to see the Holy Spirit. They want to see God in every single thing in the world. They want to see it in this bottle of water. They want to see it in the bush. They want to see it uh, in, in Roger. They want to see it in whoever. They, they want to experience God in every single facet of the world. And isn't that kind of a neat concept? That when you come outside and it's 21 degrees and it's breezy and it's horribly cold, but experiencing God in that, the wonder of that. And, and uh, on May, one of the things that even as a young child, her awe of the world was incredible. I mean, her the little thing that she would just grab hold of and just experience so richly was, was for me, very moving as a, even as a child because you know, you look at this sort of thing, you know, if she had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, it was, there was God in that sandwich. Now, of course, the child is thinking, you know, because the host, we believe, the Catholics believe that transubstantiation, where the host actually becomes the body of Christ. So, you know, I'm thinking that the eight-year-old child or ten-year-old child at the time, if she's experiencing God in the sandwich, is she eating God? Um, well, my father, I'd always ask my dad these questions. Dad, does that mean she's eating God? Just shut up. <laughs> Too many questions. But they have this incredible need for this, and they reach for this, this connection with God in every single thing that, that passes them on any given day. And I think that what a wonderful way to, to go through life. Can you imagine if you're on 400, and uh, it's bumper to bumper, and a guy cuts you off, and he just you know, comes up on the, the uh, shoulder and flies up in front of you. Can you experience God in that individual? Uh, I think that's the devil. Uh, but, uh, you know, even in that, there's this incredible peace. And if you've, if you've ever talked with somebody who is extremely contemplative uh, in their prayer life, 
uh, like a mom, for example, that's the only ones I can think of at hand, they have a demeanor about them that is very different. Um, and I met a lot of them growing up because we used to go to the monastery <clears throat> and with my grandfather quite often in Berryville, Virginia, which is about an hour outside of D.C., and he would always take us with us and we'd always meet them because one of his jobs besides doing the eye exams and surgery on them, he would uh, also, once a year they kind of would hog wild and he'd bring a case of beer, <laughs> this is for like 40 guys, uh, and a case of peanut butter. They were going to party that night. Um, but I remember talking to these guys and the way they looked at life and their demeanor and their affect, if you will, was so different than anybody I knew. Um, anybody in my family, anybody in my neighbors, anybody in my church, even our clergy and the nuns, because they had such a peace about them, but you could see that the, the richness of their experience day in, day out, with regard to how it connected to God, was something that I really felt was quite remarkable, quite remarkable. Um, the third phase of the mystic in their effort to get towards mysticism is, is again, more of a contemplative prayer that's at a deeper level. Uh, in Western tradition, this refers to experience of oneself in some way united with God. The experience of union varies, but it's first and foremost, foremost always associated with a reuniting with divine love. That's the biggest focus. Uh, Aunt May talked more about God's love than anything else. She mentioned God's anger and God's righteousness, but she always talked about love. And it was love almost at, at a level that I had never heard anybody describe regard to, regarding a Catholic, uh, regarding God, but it was just incredibly all-encompassing kind of love. So um, they spent a lot of time doing that you know, in contemplative prayer. It's a very passive process. Uh, they're not going after God. They're, they want to be a vessel to receive. So it's not an aggressive going after. Uh, but it, and the passivity is absolutely critical because they're very, very conscious <clears throat> of the receiving part of that. They want to receive God's love. They're not necessarily trying to grab. That makes it, again, totally no aggressiveness at all. Okay? I tell Mike I'll be there late. Um, <laughs> the good thing was I supposed to help the choir line up today. But if I'm not there, John Brady gets to do it, so I'm, good, I'm, I'm doing well. Um, there's also a union of, of, of a sense of ecstasy, uh, and, and in connectedness, uh, a feeling they have very often, there is a physical feeling, a warmth, if you will. Uh, there is also a sense of uh, extreme energy, generally a sense of extreme fatigue once the, the union, if you will, uh, has dissipated. Uh, Aunt May's, her, her connection with God was guided one of them was guided guy in painting. Oh no, I made the, the pastor angry. <coughs> um, <laughs> I was trying so hard. I told Marsha I wouldn't do that. Um, but you know, overall, that, that sense of, uh, there is a very physical sense of, of connection. And it, it is a very exhausting process for them as well. Now when they evaluate mystics in the Catholic Church, uh, but also this is when they, in, in all other denominations as well, um, they often will do a lot of psychological exams as well as physiological exams, examinations, to, to, because obviously they want to see if this is, uh, if they believe this is real or not. Um, some mystics develop the stigmata, and that is the, the wounds of Christ on the cross, and they actually develop them on their bodies in the appropriate place, not necessarily here, but here, uh, and, and the side, and the hole in the side with, with the uh, corresponding body fluids, and they actually experience these. And, and I'm thinking, Paul, and this is. You know, is that a conversion reaction? Is that what we call that? Uh, where somebody has so much hysteria about a particular issue that they actually begin to experience it physically. Um, probably one of the best descriptions in the world way to put that, but 
That's essentially what happens. The mind creates us in the body. Now, is it that or is it the actual stigmata of our Lord? And not all mystics get the stigmata, uh, but some do. And they're examined by physicians and, and their actual wounds. Um, and they're not, you know, they, so they, they, they rule out, supposedly, the, uh, the psychological component of that. But again, you know, that's the big leap you have to make. Uh, if you're going to make that leap in faith and believe in, in the process that, 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 that these people go through. And the question is, why them and not me? Um, you know, why does an Alan Kennedy have a stigmata? Well, I am not worthy of it. Um, and I think mystics are truly are folks that are so dedicated to our Lord that, that um, and so emotionally connected that obviously they have a connection that I don't think that I uh, sadly will ever have until I, until I get to heaven. But clearly, there is a, a, an ability for them to physically begin to feel and experience things that, that generally we cannot. Um, so the stigmata is one of the most common ones. The other is what they call the odor of sanctity. There is an odor that, very, that mystics sometimes get that is, is a very pure, a very clear, uh, clean smelling. And it's evidence not only when they're alive, but also when they die. Uh, so that's something that, that I was not familiar with. I started doing some reading the past couple months about the odor of sanctity. Uh, I bounced it off Marcia. She wasn't all for it. She said, obviously, I'm not a mystic. <coughs> Probably the most contemporary American mystic that, a lot, that some of you may have heard about is Thomas Merton, the Trappist monk from Louisville, Kentucky. Um, he was considered a mystic by the Catholic Church. Um, died in Thailand, I think it was, or Bangkok, uh, unexpectedly on a trip, on a mission trip there. But clearly, he was apparently a real fist. Uh, as a child, a very rambunctious young guy, uh, and then converted to Catholicism when he was at, um, at Columbia University after he moved to the United States. And he spent 27 years in, in the monastery, Louisville, Kentucky, not the monastery of Gethsemane. And uh, it brought about in him very profound changes in his life. But it's interesting because Thomas Burton also pushed back at the church, which you can imagine how the hierarchy liked the church. The Catholic Church is not likely to be pushed back at. As you can hear from the news lately, they, they get pretty angry when you push back at them about things. So even as a mystic, uh, even though he was a mystic, brother, uh, he did feel you know the need to push back at some of the, the rich, some of the hierarchical politics of the Catholic Church because it is a very like all churches. You know, that's one thing I've learned: that churches can be political. Go figure. Um, but you know, it, it, the hierarchy in the Catholic Church is very, very strict, uh, and you don't do certain things if you're not at a certain level. So he pushed back at that as well. Um, Aunt May, on the other hand, her she became a mystic and actually began to experience some of her mystical uh, experiences uh, prior to her uh, conversion. She, as I said, she was Anglican and ended up becoming a Catholic. But she actually began to experience some of these things prior to uh, converting. In fact, her first mystical experience was when she was about six years old. Uh, and I'm going, I'm looking at my time here. I'm going to go ahead and, and tell you one quick story about her. Uh, and then um, the next week we'll spend talking more about her, and I'm going to talk, just tell you what, what's in the book and what I experienced, and you can feel free to fire questions because it, I'm always questioning up here too because it was a fascinating experience with, with Aunt May. Um, Aunt May was the, the uh, one of 13 kids, uh, raised in Anglican. She was actually born in England, and she attended, and Aunt May only attended enough school to learn her alphabet. That was it. And that will come into play later in her writings. Uh, because she writes as if she was uh, educated much more, much beyond that. Um, she lived in Blackburn, England, um, but the family, uh, you know, they later, later moved from that because, they, as I said, they were very, they were Anglican, very strong Anglican, and they despised Roman Catholics. 
so they moved to get out of town to get away from Roman Catholics. Uh, so, which is interesting why she ended up becoming Roman Catholic after the fact. Uh, in 1926, um, and I think I will read this to you if I got time for that. This is, this is the first experience that she had uh, as a child. Um, and this is the one that always stuck with me as a, as a kid, too, I guess, because it was probably about the same age. Um, she was visiting her brother in, in town, and her family lived outside of town, and um, she missed the last train to go home. So she had to walk, about three miles. Not a big, not a big walk, but starting home, it was starting in the dark. This is a young child now. And this is from her, her diaries. Starting homeward, uh, this uh, guy's paraphrasing, paraphrasing initially, starting homeward, uh, she had gone safely through the woods and some of the fields, when suddenly she saw something move in the hedge uh, dividing the field from the next field. She thought it was a cow or some other kind of animal. Knowing she had to go on or turn back to the woods, she decided to go on. And so she continues on and she said, um, she jumped over the, uh, a, a pile there and just and a, a man came out of the bushes, coming from behind her hedge and ran after her, cursing and swearing, telling her to stop. Just as he was about to grab her, a large black, black retriever dog flew at his throat. I kept running. By the time I arrived at the next and last stile, I glanced back. It was moonlight. The man was on the ground, the dog at his throat. I kept on running up the lane. I did not get there far before the dog came after me. I think I was more afraid of the dog than I was of the man. I kept running and screaming with fright, thinking uh, the dog was going to bite me. The dog would run around me and then from side to side. Uh, and, and other than that, kept very close to me. All the fear left me. I put my hand on his head and petted him. He kissed my hand, wagged his tail, and we were friends. We arrived home. It was all dark, and the family is in bed. I kicked and kicked the door until my father came down and let me in. I don't remember what my father said to me. Uh, what my father said to me to see me come home so late that night, but I do remember he would not let me bring the dog in, saying that there was no dog. But I had my hand on the dog's head. My father kept saying there was no dog, but I knew that there was a dog because I still had my hand upon it. However. I was made to come in the house, still crying for the dog to come in. Father said I was just a terrified child and there was no dog. He was sure that there was none. When she woke up the next morning, on May, um, she went out to look for the dog, but to no purpose. Her parents had such a time with her because of the dog, they, went, they finally went to nearby farms to ask whether the people knew of a black retriever. Uh, the folks around them owned shepherd dogs. However, they admitted they had, they had the night before, had heard a child screaming late in the night also called the calling and swearing of a man, but they had gone to bed thinking it was one of those drunken fellows one hears on Saturday nights. Later they found on that spot a man's shirt and pieces of his coat with blood, blood marks on the coat. Um, she was convinced it was a dog that saved her life, but they never found her dog. And they did find the, the remains of, of, of the clothing and that sort of thing. But this was, and this was when she was a child, long before she came to Catholic. And uh, this was her first experience with, with connecting, she felt, with some kind of divine purpose to save her. So this kind of, and I'll talk next week in more, a lot more detail about her and her particular journey. And I will go ahead and close, if I could, with a prayer. Uh, this is a Thomas Merton's prayer, which I love. So if you would bow your hands with me, please. My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself, and the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I'm actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you, and I hope that I have that, I have that desire in all that I do. And I know that if I do this, you would lead me by the right path, the right path 
although I may know nothing about it. Therefore, Lord, I will trust you always. Though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Amen. Amen. Amen.